The following is a presentation from the MJ Cast, the internet's premier podcast on all things Michael Jackson. You're listening to the MJ Cast by MJ fans or MJ fans. The idea is to uh, innovate, or else why, why am I doing it? When I create my music, I feel like an instrument of nature. You let it create itself, really. I know I do. And I love to entertain. That's that's one of my favorite things. Welcome to the MJ Cast, your source of news and discussion on the King of Pop. Hello and welcome to episode 67 of the MJ Cast. I'm Jamin Bull. Unfortunately, Q can't be here during this episode, and I'm here with my co host, Charlie Thompson. Charles, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. How are you doing? Really well. We've got a special interview today with academic Joe Vogel. Joe Vogel is the author of three books about Michael Jackson. Uh, The first, Man in the Music, described album by album the creative process behind Michael's adult musical output. The second, Earth Song, Michael Jackson and the Art Compassion, detailed the almost decade-long journey of one of Michael's biggest tracks, from its inception to its release and beyond. The third, featuring Michael Jackson, was a collection of his articles about the King of Pop. In addition to his written work on Michael, Joe Vogel has appeared in two documentaries by his estate about the Off the Wall and Bad albums and wrote the liner notes for the estate's Bad 25 release. His Earth Song book has just been re-released in a revised format with new content. Joe, welcome to the MJ cast. Thank you guys so much for having me. It's a real pleasure. So where are you Skyping in from today? Uh, I'm Skyping from uh, Merrimack College, which is about 30 minutes north of Boston. This is where I uh, teach classes here. Cool. What what sort of classes do you teach? I mainly teach literature and film classes. Also do a little bit with song lyrics in some of the literature classes, uh, but contemporary literature as well as film are kind of my major areas. That's cool. Well, it's it's really great to have you on the show. We love talking to authors on uh, Michael Jackson's work, and, and uh, I'd say that you were one of the first authors to really write a career-encompassing musical biography on Michael Jackson, which has become a really important book, I guess, in the... In the in the catalog of, on, of books on Michael. Yeah, I mean, at the time, there wasn't a lot out there. You know, back when that first came out, I, I talked about this, um, you know, when I'd go to bookstores, I would look for something substantive, something that kind of spoke to, to um, Michael's talent, his genius. There really wasn't much. So I tried to put together a book that I, basically the type of book that I wanted to read about Michael, uh, which focused completely on his creative work. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. And with all of our interviews, what, what we like to do is sort of go way back to the, the start of people's careers to find out a little bit of the context of how they came to be doing what they were doing. So if you don't mind, I want to go right back and talk about what sort of upbringing and, and youth you had. <laughs> well, I had, a, you know, I had a great childhood. I grew up in California, became a Michael Jackson fan when I was very young. Uh, I remember wearing out. Do you guys remember that VHS tape, The Legend Continues? Absolutely. <laughs> yes. Uh, that was like my kind of, you know, I think I had the bad album before that, but uh, that was really kind of my entry point for Michael Jackson. And uh, I think I played that thing, you know, 500 times, basically wore it out. And um, 
you know, I, I had a I had a nice childhood that really was fueled by music. You know, following my favorite artists, my favorite bands, and and just developing this real curiosity about how they did what they did because it was such an integral part of my life. You know, it became fascinating, especially as I grew older, to kind of learn more about what went into that work. You know, all of the arts to me, it's it's really what I love so much. You know, whether whether it's literature. Uh, you know, whether it's a movie, whether it's an album, I just like to explore it. I like to just kind of dive into it. And that's, you know, that, that started at a very young age and, and has continued. Joe, what would you say was the genesis of your passion for writing? Where did that start and how did it develop? Um, I would say, you know, when I was in, you know, when I was going through school, I, I did some creative writing and that was probably the beginning you know, because I found it, you know, again, I was just trying to, in some way, write the types of things that I like to read. And so if I read something that, you know, that I found interesting, you know, I think, well, you know, it would kind of inspire me to, to try to do something of my own. And uh, so I remember, you know, early on writing some poems, writing some short stories. And then, you know, when I got into high school, I worked on the school newspaper and then when I, you know, got into college, I worked for the college newspaper. And so it just kind of, you know, it started pretty early and, and just kind of took opportunities as they came. And I also became really fascinated, especially as I got a little bit older, just in the in the process of, of book publishing and like the whole, like the design elements, everything that went into creating a book. I, I still find it really interesting. And what would you say was the, the moment in your childhood or youth that you actually became a proper Michael Jackson or Jackson's fan? I was probably nine, eight or nine. And um, like I said, I, I remember hearing the bad songs on the radio. Uh, I remember going to my friend's house and watching the, the Moonwalker video. The first album that I actually remember buying myself was the Dangerous album. But before I bought that, I, I, like I said, I remember, buy, I remember getting that VHS Legend Continues, which I think came out in must have been like 89 or 90, somewhere around there. Yeah, it was certainly very popular at the time. And the whole Moonwalker thing, it makes me think, like a lot of people I talk to, a lot of people's first introduction to Michael Jackson was Moonwalker. And whether it be the video game or the movie or... And it sometimes makes me wonder, like, how calculated was that on Michael's part to really appeal to kids with that film to yeah. spread his presence through home video all around the world? <laughs> right. Yeah. And I remember thinking, you know, when I watched it at my friend's house, I remember thinking it was really kind of edgy, you know, <laughs> like, <laughs> I remember thinking it was, uh, it was just really weird and different. And he kind of embodied that, at least for a kid, you know, at that time, like he, he had that superstar aura and it was really my introduction to, you know, to that world, I think. Yeah, definitely. So at what point, Joe, was it in your life and career that you decided to start writing your first Michael Jackson book? It was around the time of the, the uh, trial in 2005. And, um, you know, here in the United States, especially the media coverage on that trial, as you know, Charles, was so horrific that I, I started thinking about this idea of writing a book that focused on, you know, something, something more substantive, that kind of be a corrective to those media narratives. But the problem was at the time, I really had no business writing about Michael because I was an undergraduate, you know, I, I was young, you know, I had limited 
access to the publishing world. But I just started writing it, and I didn't really know what would come of it. By the time I got into it, some doors had opened through other types of writing that I'd done, including through the Huffington Post. And so gradually, I think, you know, as as the years went along, I felt like, you know, I may have an opening. I pitched it to a few publishers early on and uh, and didn't, didn't get any interest. Um, and then it wasn't until... I'd say around the time he died, it was about halfway. The book was about halfway done. And so it was after that that I was able to find a publisher for it. And what sort of research were you actually doing in the mid-2000s? I know you started writing the book then during the trial era, but who were you talking to? Like what collaborators? What sort of research were you doing then? So like in the early days, like nobody. I mean, really the way I envisioned it first was just was the same thing that you do in in a kind of literary analysis, which is you're just, you're just looking at the songs and trying to interpret what's going on, uh, what they mean, how people might think about them. You know, I, I just thought his songs were so rich that it, it would be cool to have a book that did that, you know, and it really wasn't late in the process. I think it was around the time that I got the publisher, I got an agent first and then a publisher. And they said, you know, this, this book would probably be even better if you reached out to some of the people that Michael worked with. And I was like, well, okay, but I don't, I don't know anybody, you know, how am I going to do that? And so it was around that time that I reached out to just a bunch of people. And I was actually really surprised that people actually, when they, when they found out the nature of the project and they found out, you know, that it wasn't focused on the scandals and it wasn't focused on plastic surgery or, or the trial or anything, when they found out that it was just focused on his work, they wanted to talk. And uh, so, you know, and then I would talk to one person and they would kind of, you know, introduce me to somebody else. And I think it was around that time too, that I sent what I had to the estate and, and they, you know, opened some doors for me as well. So it was just kind of a gradual process of, of, you know, trying to earn people's trust by saying, look, this is a project that has integrity that that's focused on the right things. And then once that happened, you know, I actually developed really good friendships, you know, with a lot of people that worked with Michael and, and uh, we had some really great, great talks. And I'm, I'm glad that that became a part of the book. But honestly, it was not the original intent. I just I, I had no idea how to even step into that world. It was just going to be a kind of analysis. So when you first conceived the book, you were an undergraduate. But by the time it was published, you were, I think, a professor. Is that right? Well, I was going through a PhD program when it was published. So I was teaching at the University of Rochester at that time, but I was still working on my PhD at that time. So what, what was your motivation to go down that academic route? What was it that sent you towards becoming a teacher? You know, I was always kind of torn between doing something with journalism and then doing something in higher education. And... I settled on higher education because, in part because I love teaching, but in part because I like to really go deep into things. I don't like the, you know, the, the quick deadlines. So I like to do projects that I choose, and I like to be able to kind of, you know, spend weeks or years working on them. And, and so that's what really appealed to me about academia is that, you know, I, I would be able to really work on projects over a long period of time and then of course, it's just fun, you know, when you uh, are able to teach classes where, you, you know, you can introduce students to a book or a movie that you're passionate about and kind of, 
you know, turn them on to it. So I, that, that part of it really appeals to me as well. Yeah, yeah. As a teacher, I know exactly what you're talking about. I teach high school, not tertiary level, but no, it is uh, <laughs> it is an amazing experience being able to uh, expose kids to great, great work. In fact, in some of the lessons I teach, especially when I'm teaching about geography, Earth Song is a song that we do a study of, you know, a lyrical analysis, and we watch the video and get kids really thinking about some of the the problems the world faces. And we'll get to Earth Song in a little bit, but before we get there. We, I want to delve a little bit into Man and the Music because that is your main book, I guess, your main quintessential right. work that people, I guess, um, learn about you through, or Michael through, I should say, as well. And I want to find out what was the first source or interview you got. Like, who was the first? Because we've spoken to a bunch of collaborators as well, and it's an amazing experience. And I've always been curious, what was the first one you scored? That's actually a really interesting question. <laughs> I don't know if I actually remember. I think it was, uh, you know, some of the earliest ones that I remember were Matt Forger, Brad Buxer, and Bill Bottrell. I think those were some of the earliest people that I spoke to. Yeah. I can't remember which one came first. I, have to, I would have to check my notes. How did you do the interviews? Did you travel around the place? Did you do it by phone? Oh, no, it was all in a, sh you know, I was in graduate school. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it was, you know, it was definitely a shoestring budget, you know. Um, yeah. So I just called them and I'd record the phone calls. You know, I, I'd, yeah. I'd ask them if that was okay. And then we'd talk, you know, usually somewhere around an hour and I'd record it. And then after I finished recording it, I'd transcribe it. And then I'd integrate, you know, whatever I felt was relevant into the, into the book. Yeah. So, I mean, I ended up meeting a lot of them later, you know, ended up meeting Matt Forger in person. I mean, I met a ton of them in person, but like in the early years, it was all by phone. So you said, you know, that when you first contacted people, there was kind of a bit of skepticism because of the way the media tended to cover Michael. So how did you convince these sources that you were not going to go down that path and that they could trust you to stick to the music? I just try to be as transparent as possible. So, you know, like, for example, if I if I was talking to Brad Buxer about Stranger in Moscow, I would send him what I had to that point and and let him look at it. And then I would put his quotes in and then I'd send it back to him and I'd say, do you feel like I've, you know, represented, you know, what you said accurately? Not everybody wanted that much, you know, in terms of, you know, looking at everything that, that we talked about. But I just tried to give them a sense of assurance if they wanted it. You know, if they if they wanted to have a sense of, of what it was looking like, I had no problem doing that. And I also tried to emphasize to them that I wanted their contributions to be recognized. You know, we all know Michael was a genius, but um, he did have a really talented creative team that he worked with. And, um, and, and so I wanted to make sure that those guys got some shine too. Yeah, definitely. And there's a, a funny sort of urban legend in the Michael world, I guess, that you actually had the, the idea of um, interviewing Michael for this, for this book. And the story goes that you pitched the book to Frank DeLeo, his former manager, and, and discussed potentially flying to London to interview Michael. How true is that story? So I had tickets. I mean, I had tickets to go to London and I did reach out and... I was waiting, I, like I got a return email indicating maybe, but it, it wasn't set in stone. It was kind of like, 
you know, I'm going to be out there. I've got this project. It, you know, it, it does something that hasn't been done before uh, in terms of really focusing on Michael's work. And so it was a possibility. I don't know if it would have happened, you know. I mean, at that point in Michael's career, it, it, it you just never knew, you know. So uh, I was mostly just excited to go out there and see him perform, you know, mm. and like everybody. And I hoped that, that that might be possible. But there wasn't anything, you know, definite. So if you had had that opportunity, what would have been the most key questions that you would have asked him? Say, say they gave you half hour. They said you can meet him, but you've got half hour. What would have been the questions that you would have gone straight in and said, I need to get these questions answered? You guys both know when you read Michael's interviews, he tends to be very vague about how, you know, yes. his creative process. I, I think the God, most... It, like he says things like, God, drop the song in my lap or uh, <laughs> that kind of thing. Exactly. So I don't know. I think I just maybe hone in on a, on a few songs and just try to go as deep as I could on those songs. Uh, because probably ironically, the most detailed he ever got about his creative process was in that lawsuit, right? In what was it? 94. Yeah. Those depositions. He did a couple of depositions around, um, the girl, the girl is mine is one of them and dangerous. Yeah. So you, you listen to him talking in, in those depositions that he's actually going in much more detail than he ever did in any interviews. And, and part of that's obviously the fault of the, of the people that were interviewing him because they, they just, they didn't ask good questions. So to answer your question, Charles, I, I think I would probably, you know, maybe pick a few representative songs and just really, really try to get him to go beyond the, like, you know, just fell into my lap kind of stuff. Yeah. What songs? Well, <laughs> ironically, I probably would have asked him about earth song. Um, yeah. I, I have always been, completely fascinated by stranger in moscow um and um and have tons and tons of notes on that as well from talking to people over the years uh but that song is really interesting i would love to talk to him about that one if i ever had the chance to chat with michael uh about music i've I've always thought the song that i'd want to ask him most about lyrically would be is it scary that song is just so cryptic, like the the lyricism in it. Like it's really difficult to know in some of the lines what he's actually talking about. I would, I'd love to, to ask, have what, it, what frustrates me is that so many interviewers over the years had the opportunity to ask him those sort of questions. Yeah, they did. But chose to focus on ridiculous things like, you know, like you said, the plastic surgery. I mean, how frustrating must that have been for an artist of Michael's caliber to be constantly asked about his appearance instead of his art? Right. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I agree. I mean, is it scary would be fascinating. I mean, really the whole, the, the whole, actually another song that I'm thinking of, cause I was thinking of the whole blood on the dance floor, uh, you know, the five new songs on that, um, morphine, I think would be really mm. interesting to talk to him about. Yeah. And obviously, you know, in the middle of 2009, unfortunately, Michael passed away and, uh, it was a shocking moment for all of us in the fan community and it must have been incredibly, incredibly shocking for you because you were in the middle of writing a book on him. So how did yeah. his death impact your writing process for Man in the Music? It was uh, its hard to explain, really. I mean, I, I'd never experienced somebody famous dying that felt like a family member had died <laughs> Uh, so the first reaction was just, I, I just couldn't, I, I couldn't even really process it. And, uh, and then I think, you know, after processing it, I think it was really 
um, just kind of cathartic to to think about the book and to think of putting that out into the world and having him be recognized in that way um, as an artist first and foremost. So once I got over the initial shock, I, I just kind of dove back in and it was kind of nice uh, to do that. And and then, you know, eventually when I, when I was interviewing people too, I think they felt the same way. Having those conversations was almost like, you know, therapeutic in a way. Yeah. Um, because you, you know, you're able to appreciate really what, what he brought to the world and, and just how much richness was in his work.
This is Tito Jackson, and it's Tito time. And thanks for listening to the MJ cast. So how soon was it after Michael passed away that you began working with his estate? And how did you get in touch with them? Was that again through Frank? No, it wasn't through Frank. I looked up information online and found information for, uh, I believe, the law firm that represented his estate. And I sent them, you know, a kind of email saying, I'm pretty far along in this book. It focuses completely on his creative life and work. And, you know, it's, it's not about scandals. And I th- think this would be really good for Michael's legacy. You know, would you consider letting me do it in terms of like the, the lyrics and the pictures and all that? And the, and the initial answer was no. And so I tried to be more persistent and actually sent them what I had at that point in terms of the manuscript. And once they had read through parts of the manuscript, they, they changed their, their position and, and then, you know, began to kind of work with me in terms of giving me access um, to certain things and, and kind of opening doors to other people that I could talk to and, and those kinds of things. I, I can't remember exactly when that happened, but, um, I want to say maybe within six months after he died. So what kind of things were they giving you access to? Photos mainly. Um, a lot of those photos in the book are from the estate. I think there's about 100 total, and, and I think about 50 or so of those are from the estate. Um, some of them had never been seen before. And then I got the rest of the photos from, there's a photographer, Neil Preston, who is just amazing. He, he's photographed you know, all kinds of great artists and I loved his work. So I, I worked out a deal with him for some of the other photos. And then we got some from, you know, just photo agencies like Getty. So it was mainly photos, but, um, there were some archival things or some, you know, I just asked them for certain clarifications if they had information at that, honestly, at that stage, because they had just taken over as a state, you know, and stuff was not organized. It was kind of all over the place. You know, it's not like I got tons of like, you know, secret notes and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, the main thing was I got the photos and, 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 you know, was obviously able to use song lyrics and things like that. So, yeah. Yeah. Which came first? Did you find a publisher first or did you recruit the estate first? I think I had the publisher first. And actually, I had I got an agent first before I got the publisher. So I found an agent that was interested, and she pitched it to a bunch of publishers that we thought would be good for it. And, you know, even then, even after Michael died, we got a lot of pushback. Like, a lot of publishers said, we like the idea. You know, there's definitely more interest in Michael now, but we just don't think that there's a readership for serious work on Michael Jackson the way there is on like Bob Dylan or the Beatles or, you know, so there was still this kind of skepticism that there were enough readers out there that would read this kind of book on Michael Jackson. So we got, you know, we got a bunch of no's or, you know, uh, maybe, but probably not. And then finally we, we, we got a couple that were interested and, and we went with, um, with Sterling, which they were able to produce a book that, that was high quality that had that, you know, that could really do justice to the pictures and things like that. So we were happy. Why do you think there is that perception of Michael and his fans that there's not a market for serious analysis of his music in the way that there is of other artists of his stature? Well, I think part of it, as you know, it has to do with 
you know, the fact that he isn't given the same level of respect that those artists are, some of that has to do with race. But there is a, a kind of reality to it. And I've talked, I've talked to a lot of people that have published serious work on Michael Jackson, and it doesn't sell the same way that books on those other artists do, uh, at least to this point. You know, I've, I've talked to several other people and that have published different types of book on, my, on Michael and the books that tend to not be focused on sensationalism, they sell, but they don't sell nearly as much as books on the Beatles. So that's, you know, there, there is some truth to it, but I, I, I think, you know, you know, something hopefully over time that will change. Did working with the estate in any way change the way you were putting the book together? In effect, it became like the official or authorized musical biography at that point so in what way did that influence the way that you wrote the book and put it together they still gave me autonomy i mean there was never i think let me put it this way i mean if i had said something extremely negative about michael especially in some of the more sensitive areas i think they probably wouldn't have been on board right but that was never my intent in the first place so that you know the most i would get in terms of, you know, their input was just, you know, maybe like corrections of details um, that that he happened to know about, or, you know, sometimes, <laughs> ironically, you know, there there would be a song that that they felt that I, I, you know, should reconsider, you know, in terms of of how I was I was looking at it, but at the end of the day, it was never really a matter of like. I mean, I never got instructions from them. You know, it was always my book. And so unless I said something that was extremely damaging to Michael, I don't think that there really would have been any kind of intervention. At least it didn't play out that way. And how was the public reception to Man in the Music? It was great. You know, at the time, I mean, you know, there was a lot of enthusiasm when it came out. Uh, there was a lot of goodwill. A lot of people were excited, I think, to see a book like that on Michael come out by a reputable publisher. And, um, you know, it was it was cool. It was just, it was nice to see it, you know, all around the world. And and, you know, I did signings and various things where I'd get to meet people. And it just it was a really positive reaction. It was cool to see it, you know, in libraries and, and it got taught in, you know, college, university courses. So it, it kind of achieved what I hoped in a way that that it would give michael a kind of level of credibility that he hadn't been given really in, in um, most books and so i was happy to see that and you know there was just these like surreal moments too like that you know randomly out of the blue getting a, a call from spike lee who picked it up at barnes and noble and wanted to talk <laughs> to me about it because so you know these these things that i never could have possibly imagined that that came out of it as well hmm. Well, tell us about that. Tell us about Spike Lee and what he wanted to talk to you about. You know, Spike was great. He was, he, you know, he called me. I actually, I think he emailed first and set up the call. And he said he'd got he'd gotten the book at Barnes & Noble and he, he loved it and was really happy to see a book like that on Michael. And then he invited me down to, he teaches at NYU. He teaches um, a graduate film class. So he wanted me to come visit his class and talk to them about Michael's short films. And so we met and, you know, talked and then we, we did the class. And, and so that kind of started that relationship. And 
you know, subsequently had the opportunity to work with him on, on some of his documentaries. And, you know, he's just, he's obviously an incredibly talented person and, and I was honored really to, to have the chance to work with him. So you've, um, you've revised your earth song book, but do you think you'll ever, uh, re-release and revise the man in the music book? Um, I hope so. I've wanted to do it for a long time because I feel like, you know, I've learned so much since it first came out and there's a lot of things that I'd like to either fix or add or, you know, just things that I, I feel like would make it better. I'm currently trying to work out something with my publisher because I'd like to take it elsewhere at this point. So we've been kind of working on that for the past six months and I'm hoping it's almost finished and I can take it somewhere else and do a, a second edition. What do you mean take it somewhere else? Come on, give us a bit of detail. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you know, I mean, basically I want to take it to a publisher where it will have like a long shelf life, right? Got it. And and so I, I, I want to, a publisher that, that doesn't see it as like, you know, necessarily selling like tons and tons of copies right off the bat, but something where, you know, it, it can kind of be around for a while and be used for these kind of educational purposes so I, I'm, I'm leaning more towards um, academic publishers at this point um, to achieve that aim. Now, you mentioned in a previous interview that over the course of your research and involvement in Bad 25, that you'd had the amazing opportunity to listen to some unreleased music. Now, we're not going to ask you to tell us everything, but there is one legendary song in the MJ world that there's very little known about, and it's called Crack Kills. It was written in 1986. We've all seen the handwritten lyric sheets. We know what the lyrics are. Can you tell us a little bit about if you've heard it and how complete Michael's vocals are on that song? It does exist, and there are vocals, and it's, uh, it's more complete than I thought it would be based on what I knew before. So. Yeah, yeah. Geez, I wonder why that song didn't come out on Bad 25 because I want to hear it. <laughs> Actually, to be honest with you, that was you know one of the songs that I was really hoping would have, would be on Bad 25, which um, they picked some really good ones, but there's a lot still left. You know, from you know you, you keep reading these articles about you know well they must have run out of material, but just from the Bad era alone, there's quite a bit left. Yeah, and I mean that's a song that clearly has a very deep message in it. And so, and so does so does Earth Song, and you've decided recently to revise your book Earth Song, and uh, it it is my personal favorite of of your books because I like books that have a really focused concept and uh, can go into a real lot of detail about that. Not that Man in the Music isn't focused, but it's almost really hard, I think, to sum up all of Michael's creative career in one book. Whereas Earth Song, writing a, a focused book on that, affords you the ability to go into a, a, a lot of depth, and it certainly does go into a lot of depth. So what, what made you now, in 2017, want to revise Earth Song? Well, there were a few things, uh, and I totally agree with you, and that was really the impetus for the book in the first place, is, you know, I, I viewed Man in the Music as really an introduction, right? Uh, so you could only go so far with, you know, like you said, when you're covering his entire catalog, or at least his, his solo adult catalog, you know, you could give little, basically little breakdowns, little snippets about each song, um, and then give a sense of how the album was made and stuff like that. But Earth Song 
was probably my favorite thing that I've written for the same reason that you mentioned, which is that it really allowed me to kind of go in a kind of depth and detail that I wanted to do with a lot of other songs. But this, this was the song that I felt uh, was probably Michael's most important song. And so with this new edition, there were a couple things, well, probably three things that, that made me want to put out a new version. One is that I had some really great conversations with Nick Brandt, the, the director of the Earth Song short film. Um, he also did, of course, The Stranger in Moscow short film and Childhood. And we had some really great conversations. And I wanted to, since the first edition, really didn't spend that much time on the video. I did a whole new section uh, with new quotes from Nick Brandt that I thought would add a lot to the book. The second thing is, you guys are familiar, I'm sure, with Brad Sundberg, who's been you know, doing these seminars throughout the world. Absolutely. We've interviewed him. Great, great guy. Yeah, he's a fantastic guy. And so I first saw the seminar in Toronto. Um, then he came here to Boston, which was great. And anyway, one of those seminars, I can't remember, maybe it was the first one, I think, that he played a demo of Earth Song that I had never heard before. And I became really interested in that. We talked about it a little bit. And um, and a while ago, he, he shared more details with me about it, and, and especially this really kind of fascinating detail, which is when it was recorded, uh, which was in September of 1988. And it kind of changed the timeline of the book for me, because I previously thought that Michael's first, I knew he had it on tape, like on a you know tape recorder, but I didn't realize he recorded an official demo in a studio in between legs of the bad tour. I assumed that that came at the end of the bad tour. Mm. Uh, but it turns out, based on the, the demo that, that Brad shared with me, that when he came back from the UK and before he went to Pittsburgh in the United States, there was this brief two-week window, and he came in that two-week window and put down the first demo of Earth Song, and I heard that demo, and it just blew me away, and I had to get that information in the book as well. So that so that's part of the impetus. And then the, the last thing is just that and this is, has to do with the, the new subtitle, which is Michael Jackson and the Art of Compassion, is um, I really wanted to kind of broaden the uh, intent of the book, uh, not only to focus on this song, but to Michael's broader humanitarian efforts. And so I added a lot of new material, really emphasizing, you know, what Michael's social vision was and, and what he was trying to do in those years and how it kind of culminated in the song, um, Earth Song. Clearly there is a massive emphasis on humanitarianism in the book. Yeah. Do you think that Michael's legacy as a humanitarian gets sidelined in some ways in the public eye? Well, I think people are aware of it, but it's like I mentioned in the book, it's just not good copy. <laughs> you know, it's, you know, you're not going to get a lot of clicks, you know, um, saying Michael visited an orphanage, you know, <laughs> Yeah. or, uh, you know, it's just, it was never as interesting to people, unfortunately, as the scandals, as the controversies, or even, you know, his relationships or just anything, really. Yeah. Uh, it just didn't interest people as much. But I feel like it was a very important part of his life that tends to be marginalized, even in the biographies. But there's there's this thread, really, as an adult that goes back to, can you feel it, you know, and the triumph um, short film. 
and and so I you know I kind of trace from there to to Earth Song and just show this you know he was really uh, one of those artists that wanted to change the world and you know I talk about especially in the 90s how people viewed that you know with cynicism and you know there was there was just a lot of that that idea you know that art could change something or that you know especially a celebrity artist uh would have that kind of ambition uh was viewed as kind of ridiculous and you know michael obviously people thought he had like a messiah complex and all of this but you know for me it takes a lot of courage knowing that that criticism is going to be there but still being so passionate about trying you know trying to use your art to do something meaningful mm. And to, you know, kind of change the status quo. And, you know, you look at a lot of the artists that try to model their careers after Michael or their, you know, so few of them have that element, you know, where they actually are, are saying something that powerful the, through their music and really trying to change things. And, and you know, so I, I really wanted to kind of emphasize that, that, you know, Michael was not just this entertainer. He wasn't just the artist of Thriller. You know, that there, there was a lot that came after that that was really important. And, um, you know, and I, I think I think it's worth it's worth looking at, not only for his fans, but just, you know, for the general reader, just recognizing that this artist was pretty extraordinary in his desire to use his art for something bigger than himself. And you mentioned that these kind of songs were viewed with cynicism and that were seen as kind of corny and ridiculous. And. And also in the in the era in which Earth Song was released, this was not a particularly commercial sounding record. I mean, it was a huge orchestral record in an era kind of dominated by Britpop and cheesy pop and stuff. So why do you think it defied logic, I guess, and um, and turned into such a massive hit? Well, I mean, I think that was just Michael, you know, I don't, I don't think he ever really cared in terms of, you know, I mean, I mean, he definitely, so I guess he, there were two things going on. One is that he, he wanted to work with people that could, you know, give him the, the newest, freshest, most innovative sounds. Right. So that's why he works with like a Teddy Riley, right. Or, or a Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis, you know, because he doesn't want to, he doesn't want to be safe. He doesn't want to stick with Quincy Jones, even though that's a proven formula. So there is this desire on his part to, to stay current. But on the other hand, you know, he's the type of artist, especially in the 90s, that's going to throw Little Susie on an album. You know what I mean? So, like, how many artists would do that? Mm. And and I think that Earth Song, you know, he just didn't care. Like, I mean, it, it, it meant something to him. And he wanted that song out in the world. And I mean, even when he released Heal the World and, you know, in, um, well, on the Dangerous album and then, you know, promoted it in 92 and 93, like, you know, that was viewed very cynically by most people, you know, because especially in here, here in the United States, it was the rise of alternative grunge, hip hop and all that stuff just felt edgier, you know, and, and so Michael's thing kind of seemed, I don't know, sentimental, schmaltzy. I mean, it just didn't seem like it really would appeal to like young people anymore. And I just think it, it's what Michael cared about. And so he just did it anyway. That, you know, that was his thing. Why do you think though, because actually it did turn into a really massive hit. I mean, in the UK, I think it's the biggest selling single of his career. So, I mean, why do you think 
despite everything you've just described, it did manage to translate and become as popular as it was. The only thing I can say is that it's a really amazing, powerful song. And, you know, fortunately, some people responded to it. And like you said, I think it became a number one hit in 15 countries. And it, you know, did extremely well in the UK. Obviously, you guys know it, it didn't even, it wasn't even released as a single in the US. Mm. You know, so obviously, they didn't see an audience for it here in the US. You know, how, how it, you know, it did extremely well. My understanding, though, is that there was still a lot of pushback, you know, so it was one of those songs that that a lot of people loved, but also a lot of people hated in those other countries. Um, but you guys could probably speak to that better than I could. You're right. It, it has become really a standout track looking back in his career. In fact, my wife, who's, I would say, a casual Michael Jackson fan, but is a fan, her, her favorite song of his is Earth Song. Yeah, yeah, she loves it. She loves it more than Billie Jean, The Way You Make Me Feel, everything like that. She loves Earth Song. And um, I've got a little excerpt. I hope you don't mind if I read a little excerpt from your book here. But sure. it says, Jackson's early concern was getting its size and tone right. He wanted to have the passion and soul of a gospel song, the momentum of rock, and the linear arc of an opera. He wanted a sonic landscape that borrowed from ambient and world music, yet still managed to be anthemic and accessible. He didn't want it to be too complex or abstract since the song was intended to move masses of people. The key then was to make it feel simple, but layer it with detail, texture, nuance, and richness. And I think that's really accurate. It's a, it's a deep song. It's a rich song with a lot of orchestral depth, but the melody is simple. People love it for its simplicity, I think. Yeah, no, I agree. And that's, that's what he tried to do with those with. The, the anthems, you know, is, is make it so people could remember that melody, you know, mm, mm. and, uh, you know, I, you know, having listened to it so many times now to try, I mean, there's so much going on in it, but at the same time, when I listened to that first demo that he recorded, like it's all there, you know, I mean, he had like the, the, the foundation so early, you know, and then he just, he just built it up and his patience is incredible. It's, it's really funny because I just, I just finished a, uh, a book on Prince and there's such different artists in this way, you know, like Prince would never take this long, you know, he, Prince wanted to get stuff out, you know, as quickly as possible. And, and, and Michael was such a different artist in that way because he would just tinker with songs forever in certain cases, certainly the earth song, mm. you know, which started in 80, didn't get released until 95. Another excerpt from your book actually says, and this is from the chapter, the body is a canvas. This evocative description of the iconic ritualistic participatory nature of Jackson's performances gives a sense of what made them so transcendent and unifying for audiences. Yet for all the pageantry and theatricality, it was the song itself and Jackson's ability to inject it with soul and passion that give his performance such force. Now, I think the only criticism I can see about Earth Song that I feel is potentially valid is that... Aside from his performance uh, in, I think it was Brunei, where he had a lot of ad-libs at the end of the song, which were phenomenal, that he'd never really vocalized before in any other performance. Right. It's odd, I think, that he would portray himself as so, I guess iconic in the performance, and even to the point of being likened to, to Christ but choose to offer a performance that's lip-synced. Yeah. Don't you think that 
as amazing as the song is, the performances were a little disingenuous. Even on tour, they could have, if with a song that grand, that really yeah. the art should have been foregrounded. I mean, you know, it's it's difficult to say. I mean, I'm with you that Brunei that's one of my favorite performances that he did of Earth's song, and it's because of the, the rawness of those ad libs at the end that he does, the authenticity of it. You know, this again is another way that Michael's different than Prince, but I he he had this thing that he wanted he wanted to present his performances in a very theatrical way and in a very precise way. And it, he wanted to have a very specific effect. And so he almost treated his performances like they were movies, you know. It, it kind of comes down to preferences. I personally, yeah, I would love to see, I would love to hear Michael sing live vocals, you know, and I, I that's, it, you know, even now if I'm watching concert footage, those are the ones that I enjoy the most. But Michael had reasons for doing it that way, you know, and, and, and it's not that he obviously, it's not like some of these singers where, you know, they, they can't sing and that's, you know, so that's why they, they do it that way. Michael could sing, and yeah. yet he still he still made the choice to to do it this this other way. And I don't know. I mean, the visuals when I watch the Earth Song performances are are pretty remarkable. Yeah, I would love to see. I would love to hear more live vocals. I mean, it, over the over his entire you know latter part of his career, I would I wish he would have done more live vocals. But yeah. Um, yeah. It's a shame that the song sort of came around at a point where he wasn't singing live because it was one of the ones I'd right. love to have heard live. But right. <laughs> yeah. Joe, in terms of Earth Song in This Is It, uh, the This Is It film, we know that a lot of the, the vocals used in, in Earth Song are from demos, for example, the, the demo that Bill Bottrell worked on with Michael Jackson before he changed direction, especially on the last third of the, of the song. So I guess I'm, what I'm asking is what are your thoughts around, um, in this is it, especially previous versions of earth song being used to present the film to an audience rather than, I guess, I mean, in the movie, Michael actually says that he likes his songs to be heard in the way that, you know, the, the way they are on the record, but in the film, the decision was made to use some of the demo vocals to fill it out. So what are your thoughts on that? I think it's an interesting decision. You know, it's one of those things we'd like to ask him. But I, I you know, from talking to Bill Bottrell about the track, I know that Michael really liked that early version. And, you know, ultimately he decided to go with, you know, the, the different kind of ending and uh, the different ad libs and, and everything. And, you know, added some new dimensions with David Foster. But, you know, that, that early version is really compelling. I, I, I really would just be speculating if I said why he did it. But the the thing that I find most interesting is just the fact that that song in particular plays that it was supposed to play such a prominent role mm. in the, this is it show, you know, that was really something that was pressing for him that he felt was, it was really important. Wanted, he wanted it to be like really a kind of key moment for that show. Yeah, definitely. Especially with that uh, big earth moving equipment moving out onto stage. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. He always, even in the history tour, you know, it was a real quintessential sort of central point for the whole show. Um, right. And it was clear that he really wanted to use that as a platform to get a message out for change and bettering the planet. Absolutely. You've covered many facets of Michael as an artist, and we were just discussing there, you know, how he's a, he's a singer, he's a writer, he's a performer, he's 
thinking cinematically. But if you take all of the elements of Michael as an artist, where do you think his genius mainly lied? Was it in short films, in songwriting, in performances, in recording? What do you think was his greatest strength? You know, I I feel like this is kind of a cop-out, but I think it's all of those things combined, you know? Because just as an example, what would his short films be without his dancing, right? So you're combining two things there, you know? So it's it's like, or, you know, I, I just think the, the genius of Michael was his ability to synthesize all of those things and make them work together. In one of the articles I wrote about Michael for The Atlantic, I talk about that's one of the reasons in addition to just, you know, some pretty obvious racism. One of the reasons why I feel like Michael doesn't get the critical recognition of other artists is because it's kind of easier with an artist like Bob Dylan, for example, just to focus on, like, for example, songwriting, you know, the lyrics. Whereas for Michael, you can't really just look at that one thing and say, this is what made Michael a genius. It's really the, it's all of the things that, that kind of work together and that's kind of in my opinion what created the magic it was all of those things kind of working in harmony which is why you know in some way like the short film is maybe the best you know full synthesis because you get pretty much every everything in, in that medium it's kind of a shame in a way that michael didn't get to do more of what he wanted to do in film because i really feel that that medium in particular would have really allowed him you know, in addition to like the short films, if he would have had more chances to do like full length feature films, I think uh, he could have done some remarkable things with that. Yeah. So I've got to ask you what your favorite Michael stuff is. So we always ask this question to our guests. What What is your <laughs> yeah. number one? Fa- I've got a few of these to ask. What is your number one favorite Michael song? Number one is Earth Song. Okay. Okay. Good choice. What about... Short film. Uh, okay, I'm going to cheat a little bit with a two-way tie. Smooth Criminal and Black or White. Yeah, yeah. Album? My favorite album is the History album. Yeah, I think that's Charlie's favorite too. Mine's off the wall, but History's great. <laughs> and <laughs> It's good. And, and lastly, I've got I to gotta ask, what's your favorite Michael Jackson tour and why? Ooh. Um, my favorite tour is is the bad tour. And why? Because, I don't know, I, I just get the sense when I watch him on the bad tour that it's just like peak Michael, you know? It's just like he's just, uh, he's at the top of his game on the bad tour. I, I just love watching footage from that. Did you ever stop to notice all the blood we shed before? Did you ever 
enough, this notice, this crying earth, this weeping show. Just 
Hi, this is Michael Prince, studio engineer and producer with Michael Jackson, and you're listening to the MJ Cast. Now, uh, another question we always ask our guests when they come on the show is, how do you think Michael should be remembered? And I guess we get an insight into that through your books, but if you could boil down into, I guess, a soundbite, I mean, how, how should Michael be remembered? I think first and foremost, he should be remembered as one of the greatest artists of the past century. He was a singular artist. Like, there's, you know, like I said, there's so many people that try to, uh, in some ways, model what they do after him. You know, we could, we could work through like a list of dozens of people that cite him as, as their inspiration, but there will never, ever be another Michael Jackson. I mean, he's just, he's so unique. He had this really unusual education in terms of, you know, going through Motown, um, just the people that he was able to study and draw from, and then just his natural ability and then his curiosity, you know, just, just consuming everything having this extensive library, this extensive kind of warehouse to, to draw from. The, the number one thing for me, you know, like you said, maybe not surprisingly given the book that I wrote, but um, is I just think he should be recognized as just one of the most unique and, and brilliant artists we've, we've ever had. I think legacy is something which preoccupies the fan base in a way. And there's a lot of dispute about legacy and how Michael should be remembered and how, you know, things should be handled and so on. And the community, the fan community, is quite a fractured place. And it seemed like you'd kind of retreated from that. So did you have any hesitations about coming back with this revised version of the Earth Song book? Were you worried about copping flack again as soon as you stick your head above the trench? Yeah. I mean, it was a bit toxic and I, I think, you know, I needed a break from that. And it was, you know, it was also just nice to write and think about other artists or other people, uh, other works of art that I enjoy. There was a little bit of hesitancy, but at the end of the day, I think most people get it. You know, I think most people can see something for what it is. And, um, you know, a book like Earth Song, it's not going to have a huge audience. I think that there are people out there that uh, can appreciate you know, what a book like this is, is trying to do, uh, which, you know, at the end of the day is just is documenting history and, and trying to recognize one of Michael's most, in my opinion, one of his most important songs. You know, so at the end of the day, I think I just put, put something out there that I think is good and positive and, and, and then people uh, can do what they want with it. I mean, you emerged into the fan community, I suppose, at the worst possible time. It was probably like the most fractious time ever to be, I mean, worse than the trial in a sense, because the trial unified the fans, whereas mm. you emerged in 2010 into the middle of like warfare about the Michael album. So what was that like for you? I mean, in, in a sense, the timing couldn't have worked out any worse for you, but so you emerge into the middle of a catastrophe for the fan community, which really has never recovered from. So what was that like for you, and how did it feel to end up releasing your book into the middle of this 
drama. It was kind of weird and unexpected, to be honest. But I will say, like, there was kind of a delayed reaction because I felt like when the book first came out, like, it was like everything was seemed really positive at that time. Like, I, I you know, it wasn't until later, really, like a year or two later, that the, the other stuff started to enter the picture. But yeah, I mean, it's unfortunate, you know, and I wish I wish certain things didn't play out the way they did. And, uh, you know, in terms of like the Casio tracks and stuff like that, like it was unfortunate because I just was basically trying to do what I'd done with to that point, which was to ask the people that I had been uh, um, talking to about Michael's catalog, you know, and asking them, you know, what's your opinion? Like, do you you know, what do you think about these things? You know, do you think it was him like why did the vocals sound weird? And like, you know, at the time, like the thing that I kept hearing from those sources was, yeah, it's, you know, it probably is. And and so that's kind of what, what I went with. And obviously, you know, more information came out after that. And, you know, uh, I, I feel like my call, you know, especially as we kind of went forward was just, yeah, like, let's, let's be transparent. Like, let's try, you know, I tried to reach out to Eddie Cassio. I wasn't able to ever talk to him or interview him. So I never really learned anything directly from him. But it was just a matter of like, you know, working through sources. And then obviously, like I said, more information came to light. And I never really felt any investment, you know, in in those tracks. So when new information came out that kind of pointed to, hey, you know, this may be uh, a little bit different than than I originally thought, then, you know, I, I feel like, you know, it, it was not difficult to to acknowledge that um so to be honest joe i think in my opinion we do need to spend a little bit of time talking about this because the truth of the matter is that in the michael jackson fan community you have a dual reputation as one being an incredible (laughs) writer of um analysis around his work but also being somebody who at the time the songs came out supported them so we want to give you this opportunity to really discuss what happened around that, the inside story around why you supported them so that we can have a new chapter in the Michael world, in the fan community where we can enjoy your, your great work. So if you wouldn't mind, like what was the first moment you actually learned about the songs? Was, was it at the same time as the rest of us or was it, directly through the estate when did you learn about eddie cassio's songs um yeah i think it was um just a little bit before they came out uh, or like before you know the first one um was released and um and you know i i you know when i heard that first one uh which didn't they released that on his website correct yeah, they released a snippet of breaking news on his website in November. I don't think I had heard it before that. Yeah. Um, in fact, I had not heard it before that. Uh, so, yeah, I was hearing it in real time with everybody else. And my reaction was that it sounded very strange. Off, yeah. Uh, yeah. But but that there could be a number of reasons for that, right? Because anybody who has spent time in a recording studio or who's worked with people uh, or talked to people that worked in a recording studio know that you can do, you know, pretty crazy things with vocals. I mean, you can do anything with vocals. Um, so, so that, that was just my initial reaction is like, Oh, those vocals sound really different. Um, 
So that was kind of my starting point, which I think was, you know, pretty similar to most people. I, my reaction was the same, except that I actually believed they were him for about 48 hours. I was in a state of like proper denial. I was like, there is no <laughs> way in the world that his estate and Sony could do this. It's impossible. So therefore it must be him. <laughs> And then people started yelling at me and saying, you're an idiot, Jamin. <laughs> no, it was the same, same for me, to be honest, because you, you're listening to the song and you're going, this really, really does not sound like him. But then at the same time, you're going, but why the hell would they do that? How right. and why could that be allowed to happen? So it, right. on, a, you know, on a, a sensory level, as you're listening to the song, it feels all wrong. But then your brain right. is saying... What right. possibly would be the motive and how could this have ever been allowed to happen? Yeah. Psychologically, too, like you hear something, but then like, for example, I check in with other people that I knew that were Michael Jackson fans, right? They've been listening to him for decades and and like it was split. Like some people were like, oh, yeah, of course it's him. And other people would be like, no, you know, it's not. And, you know, there was this, um, you know, at least in the early stages, like, you know, they're just, you know, there was a kind of split opinion at least the people i was talking to yeah yeah and like you said earlier that you tried to figure out what was going on and you were writing a book at the time so as as part of your research did you put any of your energy into trying to discover the origins of those particular songs i'd imagine you you would like any other collaborator you would have wanted to reach out to eddie because he actually legitimately did work with michael as evidenced on the thriller 25 album right so, yeah, so I reached out to him and initially he was going to do an interview with me and then he pulled out of it. Mm. Um, so, so I did, you know, I, I spoke, you know, the, when the estate had that list of people that, you know, um, had like heard the, the album as it was being put together, I reached out to those people, you know? Yeah. And I, I asked them, you know, I said like, what do you, what do you think? You know, and, and, you know, the consensus early on was, um, it's probably him. He was good friends with, with them. He spent time there. They had a studio, you know, they had like a makeshift studio. So it's, you know, it's very possible, um, that it was him. And, you know, to, to be a hundred percent honest, that was what I was hearing in those early months when, when the album was just coming out. So that's, that's what I went with at that time. Yeah. I mean, you're saying the consensus was that it was probably him, but you wrote a couple of articles where you said it was him you described it as the last work jacks never wrote and recorded so what gave you that confidence to go with that narrative at that point um i mean i i think you know when i'm using that language i was using you know i was talking describing the entire album which you know um obviously there was no dispute over most of the songs on the album um but but with those songs in particular again it, it just had to do with like these sources that I had were great, you know, like they, they'd been the same people that I talked to that were in the studio with Michael, uh, you know, that worked closely with him. And so I felt based on, on that, you know, I could, you know, confidently say, okay, yeah, I mean, it sounds weird, but there, there could be a variety of explanations for that. And so, you know, and, and like you said, I mean, at the time, it just seems so outlandish to think that there's, you know, there'd be this, you know, um, kind of crazy thing going on uh, with with them putting forward or bringing forward songs that that weren't actually Michael. Um, 
But if you're honest with yourself, do you, was there also a concern? You've got this agreement with the estate. They're letting you use all these pictures. They're letting you use all the lyrics. The book isn't out yet. Was there an element of you being worried about cheesing them off? Um, I don't think so, because I could have easily just not reviewed it at all. You know, I could have just said, look, I'm not going to include the posthumous stuff in my book. I'm not going to do that stuff or I'm not going to do reviews. Um, Charles, to be honest, it was just kind of like at the time, it was just exciting. Like, oh, this unreleased Michael Jackson music, you know, which we hadn't heard really since the ultimate collection that you're going to get new brand new songs by Michael. Um, so I kind of wanted to, you know, be a part of it for that reason, because here you have brand new Michael Jackson material coming out. And, and so it was kind of exciting, but there was, there's never any sense that, you know, there was like some company line where they were saying, you must go out there and write a review and the review needs to be positive. Um, if I felt strongly at the time, you know, one way or the other, I could have just not written the review. I guess the problem for us as fans is like we've got an email here that, that you're writing to Karen Langford, um, archivist at the Michael Jackson estate. You're doing the right thing on November 8th saying, dear Karen, I debated about whether to send this email, but here it goes for what it's worth. I am the furthest thing from a conspiracy theorist. I think you and John have done a remarkable job for the estate, etc. But the lead vocal on that new song just does not sound like Michael Jackson. And then two days later for the Huffington Post you actually say until a forensic analysis or some concrete evidence proves otherwise, the conspiracy theory doesn't hold up for me, especially after hearing the final album versions on very good speakers. So November 8th, you're saying the songs aren't real. You're doing the right thing. You're telling the estate, this isn't Michael. But two days later, you're publicly saying they're him. Let's endorse these songs. So that's the sticking point for the fan community. Do you regret now writing those two Huffington Post articles? Um, yeah, I mean, sure. Um, I wish I had, you know, I wish I hadn't written them, but it came from the right place because, again, I sent that email and asked for clarification, basically, and they gave me those. The you know, they they showed me the list of people that worked with Michael that could kind of you know, talk to me and, and, and tell me, you know, what they thought about the tracks, which is what I did. And then they also, you know, talked about, you know, this elaborate process that they went through to verify their authenticity, uh, which again, at that time I had no reason to, you know, I mean, like, for example, if I think a vocal sounds off, but somebody says, look, we've had like a top notch forensic musicologist look at this track and, and and say that it was Michael, you know, it's easy again with hindsight to, you know, to, to, yeah. to say, well, you, sh you still should have known better. But, but when that evidence is presented to you early on, like that was compelling to me. I mean, I thought, oh, okay, look, his engineers, his, you know, people that work with him seem like, you know, they overwhelmingly think it's him. They did this very exhaustive kind of uh, search into its origins and into you know, actually breaking down its components to see, you know, through like a forensic analysis, like all of that was extremely compelling evidence to me at the time. And so given that evidence, I went forward with just reviewing it as if it were uh, all, you know, uh, original Michael Jackson stuff. Now, yeah, you know, 
months later when I, you know, get more information, um, you know, in terms of, you know, unlike, for example, the um, Brad Buxer material that he worked on with Michael, there were no, you know, computers that ha- that kind of documented, you know, all of the different versions of, you know, I didn't know that at the beginning, but like when that kind of information came out and, you know, and then some of those people that were originally listed as like saying that they were behind it, they kind of actually turned out to be a little bit more. Yeah. I mean, they, 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 weren't forward they, at all. <laughs> they had, yeah. they had doubts, but I mean, uh, his family you know, at these, the time coming out and saying, it's not our son singing. It's not our brother singing, you know, that, right. that cast right. as well. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. But again, like not everybody from his family was, was, you know, speaking out and there, there were people that were, um, you know, working with the estate on the album. I mean, like, you know, like his nephew was on tracks, you know, like Jackie Jackson was involved. So it was, you know, again, it was a much more muddled picture at the time, but I just want to reiterate, I never had any investment in those tracks. So like when, when more information came to light, it's not like I was ever pushing back against that. It was always like, okay. I think the investment you had in the tracks was your integrity in the fan community. And the, the reality is that Michael's three nephews, his daughter, his mother, and his brothers were saying the songs weren't real, but you, you were saying they were. Okay, and that's fine. But again, the people that I worked on my book with were people that, that were working closely with Michael in the studio. So I didn't have, you know... I, I didn't interview Catherine, for example, for my book. I mean, I I respect her, but I never I didn't have like you know her number, or her email to check, you know, like, and and so, um, and again, like, if they were saying that they didn't think it was Michael, it's not as if that didn't have an effect on my opinion of them of the, of the tracks, you know, cause obviously like when I heard them saying one thing, especially, uh, you know, his nephews who I really respect and who I've, you know, talked to, uh, since then, um, I, I didn't think that they were coming from a, like, uh, you know, any kind of, you know, I thought that they thought that they were, um, you know, not Michael. Uh, and so, you know, in the early days, based on my sources, I thought, you know, that they probably were Michael and that's what but, I went with. Well, you and didn't then think when more, Michael, because on November 8th, you told the estate, and you didn't think it was Michael. I'm sorry. Oh, you just said you, in the early days, you thought they were Michael, but on November 8th, you said they weren't to the estate. Right. So again, I, emailed them my concern, which is what I talked to you guys about at the beginning, which is I listened to breaking news like everybody else. The vocal sounds strange. I reach out to the estate, you know, and say, you know, this, this just doesn't sound like him to me. Yeah. They give me all that information, you know, this kind of exhaustive uh, list of information, forensic musicologist, looking into the origins. Here's a list of people that work with Michael that think it's him. And I go with that information. Yeah. More information comes to light. And I say, okay, yeah, this, this is actually something that people 
have every right to question and look and look into. You mentioned that one thing that really set in stone your opinion at that time was what they replied to you with in terms of evidence. What sort of things did they show you that was that you considered to be evidence? Well, I mean, at that time, it was really the first time I'd ever heard the term forensic musicologist. You know, I'd never heard of uh, of that before. But you know, they they said that they'd conducted a pretty thorough investigation, had this world renowned. Uh, musicologists look at it and perform waveform analysis. And, you know, that was that stuff, you know, for me was like, oh, okay, well, they they really, you know, uh, did their research and, and, you know, tested these tracks and, and, um, you know, had had a really thorough look at them. Then, of course, they, they provided me with a list of, of names, many people that I knew and had interviewed in terms of people that had worked with Michael, yeah, uh, that had listened to them. Um, so it was, you know, it was that, and you know, they, they said they'd, they'd done some other kind of research into the background of them. And since I didn't have, I didn't know anybody who was there, or I hadn't interviewed anybody who was actually there with the Casios, um, that stuff at that time was pretty compelling to me, especially, you know, just the idea that, that they'd perform some kind of waveform analysis. Did they, um, by any chance, did they show you the forensic musicology report? They didn't, no. They didn't. Um, and with the guys that they mentioned that had worked with Michael that believed it was him, they're like similar names to what was on Howard's statement, I guess. Yeah. 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 So, so, yeah. So, I, you know, I mean, again, you, you, you see those names, you know, people that you respect and, um, you know, that worked very closely with Michael and, um, and then, you know, that combined with the fact that, they had apparently done this, this, um, you know, consulted with this renowned forensic musicologist again for at that time, that was, uh, that was pretty compelling to me. So it's a matter of you throwing in with the wrong camp basically. And honestly, definitively now, before we finish this up, like definitively looking back, are you willing to say that in your opinion, the songs are not Michael Jackson? Because before we as fans consider buying your books, I think we need to hear that. Um, I do not think that they are Michael. Based on the information that I have that's come out over, you know, the past years, it's my opinion that they do not sound like Michael Jackson. And uh, do you, what are your feelings towards the estate now after they effectively sent you out there to say that they were you know they they told you no don't worry about it we have all this proof you're fine are you resentful of that you know i i don't really know how to answer that you know i i think that they were given those tracks and you know from my perspective they given where they came from uh, um and given some of the things that they investigated i think that they genuinely thought that they were authentic and so i don't think that you know from my perspective i don't think that there was any attempt to you know um explicitly manipulate me or the fans i think you know they they trusted the origins of those tracks they trusted their source so if there's any you know i think they would acknowledge that mistake 
at this point. You know, oh, they have. They the, have in the, court. They have been saying in Vera Sarova's lawsuit, the Sony lawyers have been saying that they they were tricked. That they're basically saying that now. Like, yeah, I mean, and, and I think part of their regret would be that 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 their you know research on those tracks should have been more rigorous and exhaustive. Yeah. I, it's funny because I've, I've had the privilege of speaking to Eddie. I spoke to the guy for nearly two hours and it was a bizarre conversation. Like I, I grilled him on the songs. I was like, dude, these don't sound like Michael. What is going on here? James, the, when, the ad, when, was, when, did, when did you talk to him? Um, Do you remember it, what year? It would have to be about a year ago or maybe a little more. Oh. It was pretty recently. Oh. And oh, okay. I actually asked him, I said, these songs are full of ad libs that are from le- legitimate Michael Jackson recordings. Like there's earth song vocals on here. <laughs> why, why are you lifting these, these snippets from other records to put on here to make it sound more like Michael? And his answer to that was that Michael used to kept go around with a hard drive full of his old ad libs to drop into songs to, to give it that Michael <laughs> magic. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> like that's totally inconsistent with every other, you know, with, with every other engineer or producer we've ever talked to. But anyway, hopefully, hopefully the, the Vera lawsuit plays out in a way that there's an ethical resolution to this and that the album's taken off for sale because what bothers me is that, number one, the estate and Sony haven't apologised yet, and number two, the songs, fraudulent Michael Jackson vocals are, are still for sale. I had a kid the other day in one of my classes singing Monster, saying it was one of his favourite Michael Jackson songs. That is not good for his legacy. Come on. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Joe, you said um, you said earlier, you said, I wish certain things didn't play out the way that they did. So given that you felt you had a basis at the time for publishing what you did, what, what is it that you wish had, had played out differently? I mean, honestly, Charles, I just wish I wouldn't have touched them. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, I, I wish... I, I wish... I would have just, you know, put put the book together, uh, not reviewed the new stuff, the posthumous stuff, and not even touched it. And you know, um, wow. I mean, it's it's you know, I just I didn't really have a sense at that time what I was getting into. Um, I went with the sources that I had at the time that I thought you know were were credible and and um, you know, in retrospect, you know, I wish I just didn't even write about them in the first place because. Like I said, I don't, I, my interest in Michael Jackson has nothing to do with those songs. No, exactly. Um, That's and, right. And, and I would be happy, you know, like, uh, I would be happy to see them kind of removed from, from all of his, uh, albums going forward. I think that's the right thing to do. And, Will you um, remove them from your book? Oh, absolutely. In the, in the, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay. I mean, that's one of the, that's one of the reasons why I'd like to, to do another edition um, because, um, first of all, just because I don't really want to, I want the book to be about his catalog and, and not all the posthumous releases because that really, for the, for the most part, doesn't, in, the posthumous stuff doesn't really interest me. Um, so, I mean, I, I guess if like new songs that you can kind of fit in a particular era, like the bad 25 stuff, you know, like those, those new songs, like that's, that's fun. You know, that's cool to listen to those songs and kind of get a better sense of of what he was working on uh, during that time. 
But again, all of those songs, you know, have histories and you can you can hear the different versions of them. And there's not, you know, this kind of ambiguity or this, um, you know, these these crazy kinds of excuses for why we don't have, you know, notes or, or you know, demos or anything like that. So. Um, so, yeah, if there is a subsequent edition of Man of the Music, which I'm, you know, hopeful there will be, um, it will not include the Casio tracks. So when you you did receive a lot of blowback from the fan community from various quarters would you do you understand where that came from and you know what would be your message now to the people that were skeptical of you because of your endorsement of those songs do i understand why people were upset yeah absolutely do i think that it was kind of you know from like really a small group of people like you know um, but, but nonetheless, a very vocal group of people, um, you know, I think they personalized it and, you know, and handled it in a way, uh, that was not fair, uh, that was not open-minded, that was not decent. Um, and, and so I, I feel like, you know, that's unfortunate, but the vast majority of people that I talked to, you know, at that time and going forward, we're totally decent about it, you know, especially when we could sit down and, you know, have a conversation like this, Yeah. uh, in terms of, you know, what I was, what I was trying to do. And, and really what I've always tried to do is draw attention to, uh, you know, the genius of Michael's catalog. And like I said, if I have a regret, it's that I just wish I wouldn't have touched those tracks in the first place and done like, you know, those two reviews for the Huffington Post, uh, based on that information that I had at the time. It was almost like a perfect storm. You you sort of came along at a time where a new album was coming out. Right. It, you wanted you wanted to keep the fan community abreast by writing about it. Right. And you were being told by the estate that they're legitimate. It it was a perfect storm and in a lot of ways I actually feel incredibly sorry for you. <laughs> really because of the choices that you you were put in a position where you had to make. But nonetheless, I want to say thank you for opening up about this because it's not an easy conversation to have, but I think it's one that's been necessary for a while to have. And I think after the community hears from you directly about your thoughts on the songs, why you wrote what you did, it's, um, I think it's time for us to reconsider your work. Um, and so thank you for, for allowing us to have that conversation with you. Yeah, yeah sure, no problem. And there is, uh, by the way, like a couple of years ago, I posted something on my website um, about the Casio tracks just because it, you know, I, I felt like I just kind of had to, you know, it's kind of like, when, you know, when you, when Michael would get interviewed and, and every interview inevitably would go yeah. in a certain direction. Yeah. And so I just, yeah. at, well, at some point it's just like, okay, here's, here's what, if you want to know kind of how that unfolded you know, here it is. And so I posted something on the website. It should still be there. We'll link to that in the show notes for sure. Okay. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great. Just one more question in that vein, which is that as J- Jamin reminded me a second ago, he mentioned that the songs are still on sale. Although within a legal context, the estate's lawyers have said that the songs are probably fake. That's as far as they've gone so far. The songs do remain on sale. They've never apologized or publicly uh, acknowledged that they're fake so if the estate comes calling and wants you to be in a thriller documentary or write the liner notes for something or whatever how do you square that 
how do you square the two things? Do you feel comfortable working with or for the estate on anything while this issue is outstanding? That's a good question. I mean, I, I feel like, you know, you, you look at each individual project and what it's, what it's attempting to do, right? Um, so if I felt good about what a project is trying to do, like, for example, I really feel like the net effect of the off-the-wall stuff uh, the documentary that Spike did and the Bad 25 stuff. I think that was really good for Michael's legacy. And it draws attention to, again, the important work that, that he uh, that he left behind. And so if there's, you know, if there's a project that that's kind of in, in that same vein, I don't think I would have a problem participating in it, to be honest. You know, if there was a project that, you know, there was some any real concern on my part about like the, the quality or the credibility, um, you know, then I would, I would think twice about it. But if it, if it's a project that I feel good about, um, that I think will be good for Michael's legacy, then yeah, sure. So you, you sort of look at things like individual projects. If this project has merit and it's going to further Michael's legacy, I want to be a part of it. There, there are some fans, myself included, and sometimes I really, I don't know, question myself around this, but like, there's a lot of fans that say, the fraudulent songs are still for sale amongst a range of other potential uh, poor behaviours like uh, undervaluing Michael Jackson's image with the IRS and not consulting Michael's children on um, products. I, I can't reconcile buying Michael Jackson material from the estate knowing that there's those things that go on. Do you think that that is also a valid opinion or, or position? Yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean, I don't think anybody needs to feel, you know, any Michael Jackson fans need to feel obligated to buy anything, you know, probably most of his fans already have all of this stuff, you know, so. It's particularly, it's it's come to a head again now in the in this new Scream era with Thriller 3D. There's a lot of fans that are going to it and then there's uh, right. an equal amount of fans that aren't and saying, well, hey, if you're still selling the Castio tracks, I can't go and support this. Right, yeah, and I get, I think, you know, when you're talking about kind of, how fractious the the fan communities become. I think it, you know it'd be good for people to just give each other the benefit of the doubt. You know, mm. um, so people want to boycott products. That's fine. You know, like no, nobody needs to buy stuff they don't feel comfortable buying. I mean, if they want to buy, like I'm not going to buy this new album. You know, because I have all these songs. You got all the songs. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, like, I, don't, I don't need you know the, like the Scream album is what I'm referring to. Like, how, I, come I, you, how come you haven't written on it and Thriller 3D? I was half, I was expecting a Joe Vogel sort of um, rundown. Did you go to like one of the? Have you seen Thriller 3D? I haven't. I've just been kind of out of the loop. Like I said, I've been working for the past couple of years on a Prince project uh, book, and so I've just been kind of out of the loop on the Michael stuff. Yeah, and um, you know, like I like I said, I like the artwork on the new album. Like I think it looks kind of cool, but I have all the songs, so there's no real reason for me to be interested in you know in buying it. On the other hand, like one of my students came up to me and said, like, oh, I, you know, this this new Michael Jackson album, you hear about it, like, and he was all excited about it. And, you know, he doesn't have all the albums that I have. So, like, you know, it may turn, you know, people like him onto Michael. So, mm, um, yeah. but for me personally, like, you know, those those things don't really, you know, I mean, like I said, I already have those songs, so I'm good.
Hi, this is Damien Shields, author of Escape Origins, the songs and stories that Michael Jackson left behind, and you're listening to the MJ Cast. Well, as we conclude today, um, I just want to thank you again, Joe, for coming on. And I've got to ask, what is next? What's next for Joe Vogel? What can we look forward to beyond Earth Song? Well, like I said, uh, I've been working on a Prince book, and that will come out this spring. And, um, you know, I, I'm hoping at some point for a second edition of Band of the Music. And there may be, you know, there may be some other MJ-related stuff. Like I said, I have tons of of notes and things on the stranger in moscow song which you know i was intending at one point to do something similar to earth song with stranger in moscow but we'll see you know i uh, i i did get kind of burned out on on it and part of that had to do with some of the toxicity and so you know it, it's been nice to to write about some other things and you know but i i i really you know still love michael's music you know still love thinking about it and talking to those people that were part of it. And, and so, you know, there may be, there may be a few things uh, in the future. And what's the Prince book about? So it's theme based Charles. So it's like, uh, it's not like a survey of his catalog, like man in the music it's looking at particular topics. So there'll be a, a chapter that deals with politics, a chapter that deals with race, a chapter that deals with, religion you know so it's the the chapters are theme based and each chapter kind of goes in depth on you know how prince kind of grappled with those uh issues in his work and in his career and just as we wrap up joe where can people find you online if they want to connect with you well they can just go to my website i guess joevogel.net try to get back to people if they uh fill out the form and email me yeah We played three tracks on this episode for you guys to listen to, some different interpretations and versions of Michael Jackson's music. Uh, We had Funky Fond's version of Stranger in Moscow, an orchestral version. We had Michael Jackson's Earth Song demo that he worked really closely on with Billy Bottrell. And finally, we played Rock With You from The Bad World Tour during 1987 in Yokohama. We hope you enjoyed these songs. Thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you for giving us such a, a personal and candid interview. I can guarantee you if you ever want to come back on the MJ cast, we won't be touching those Casio tracks again. We've got the story <laughs> out there around how it unfolded. We look forward to yeah. Earth Song coming out. You can grab it on Amazon if you go to Amazon.com. We'll have a link in the show notes where you can get that one. I've had a read of it. I think it's a great, great revision of the book with even more depth and detail, especially around Michael's humanitarian work. It is a really good read. Joe, thank you so much for coming on the MJ cast. Thank you, Jamin. Thanks, Charles. Good to talk to you guys.